The Jewish Views on. The hidden community in the heart of Tehran. Reporter Annika Rothstein tells us more. The path to Judaism that leads to a weekend retreat organized by the reform movement. And Not Moses, as the newest biblical comedy to hit the West End prepares to open, director Gary Signor gives us an insight. But first, with a look at the Jewish news this week, I'm Philip Krisikos. In Israel, an American man has been killed whilst visiting the tourist district of Jaffa. 28-year-old Taylor Force was the victim of a violent stabbing attack that left nine others injured during yet another terror rampage. The 21-year-old perpetrator was shot dead shortly after. Elsewhere, a Uruguayan Jew was also stabbed to death by a man shouting Alua Akbar. Activist and businessman David Fremd died on Tuesday following the attack, which also left one of his three sons injured. A 35-year-old man has been arrested. Iran has reportedly test-fired two missiles, one of which had the words Israel should be wiped off the earth written on it in Hebrew. Such phrases have adorned missiles fired by Iran before, but this one comes after the country's recent nuclear deal with world powers, including America. The Israeli Sephardi chief rabbi has visited the UK for the first time. Chief Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef toured synagogues and schools and addressed a national conference of Sephardi rabbis at London's Lauderdale Road Synagogue. His visit has been heralded as having had a huge impact on the community. An event that gives participants the chance to explore their paths into Judaism has taken place in Nottingham. 20 people took part in Reform's second-ever conversion residential weekend. It was organised by the convener of Reform Judaism's religious court, Rabbi Jackie Tabik, and we'll be finding out more from Rabbi Tabik later in the show. And finally, a rare 2,500-year-old seal bearing the name of a woman has been discovered in the evacuation of an ancient Jerusalem site. Archaeologists believe the owner of the antique would have been exceptional compared to other women of the time, as it meant she had legal status, which would have allowed her to conduct business and possess property. Think how proud she'd be today. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport. Thanks, Philip. British Transport Police have confirmed they're investigating video footage of a group of Arsenal supporters who were filmed chanting anti-Semitic abuse before last weekend's North London derby against Spurs. The incident has been condemned by Arsenal, Kick It Out and communal leaders, who are also demanding swift action be taken against the perpetrators. Last week's game of the day in the Maccabi League saw Woodford Wanderers beat Oakwood B 2-1. The top-of-the-table Division 1 clash featured a contender for goal of the season from Wanderers' Alex Aviram, a strike which can be viewed on the Jewish News website. This week sees three of the four Peter Morrison Trophy quarter-final ties played, while Hendon and Redbridge do battle in the Premier League. The sides last met last month in the now-famous 6-6 Cup thriller. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News. 
Joining me in the studio is editor Richard Ferrer and Bridget Grant, the supplements editor. Welcome to you both. Rich, I suppose, as ever, we'll skim over the front page. We really just will skim over it, I think, today, because I think you're having an interview later on in the show with the journalist who wrote the front page. It's an incredible interview with someone we have headlined as Iran's token Jew. We spent the Iranian election day a few weeks ago at a synagogue in Tehran talking to the only Jew who is a member of parliament in Iran. Now, some people might say, oh, Iran's giving a democratic voice to its Jews. That's very noble of it. That's very good of it. It's uh, great that it's giving a, a voice to a minority, especially a Jewish minority. Other people might say that this man could potentially just be a mouthpiece, a puppet to coerce the community, someone to make sure that the Jews stay pro-regime and anti-Israel. And certainly this gentleman has spoken to our journalist, has said that he is a fierce critic of Israel because he wants to avoid any confusion with his superiors. I'll let our listeners decide which one's probably true. And obviously Annika, the journalist, will have a lot more personal information than I can provide. So I'm sure her interview will be very, very revealing. I'm sure it will. And as you quite rightly identify, coming up very shortly, Kate Fulton will be speaking to Annika Rothstein. OK, well, it's apparently, if you were to divert away to another story, if we look at the IDF in particular, who knew that it's not just Jews who are in the IDF? Last week was something called Israel Apartheid Week, a monstrous, malicious invention that demeans Israel in the minds of of many people, both right-minded and people that are just ideologically opposed to Israel. So the Zionist Federation brought this incredible gentleman to the UK, a guy called Major Allah Wahib. He is a Muslim major in the IDF. That's right. He's the most senior Arab soldier in the Israel Defense Forces. We put an opinion piece by him up on our website a few days ago. In no time it went viral. It's currently on 34,000 Facebook likes and counting. You know, I've written pieces about Gaza, about Palestinian incitement, about all sorts of things to do with the Middle East. And it feels like I'm preaching to the converted. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't really change the narrative in the way that this piece has done. This is the most popular piece we've ever had on our website in the column section. And this is the piece I think that changes the narrative. And if you haven't read it already, I really heartily recommend that you do. And also, I think that something like that goes some way to reassure people that actually Israel maybe isn't the monster that it's portrayed. Well, with any luck, it will do. And just that mere 34,000 likes that you mention, which is obviously a very impressive achievement, hopefully will go some way to echo that as well. Plus, also, I have to compliment the man on what appears to be one of the most superb beards I have ever seen in my life. And I know that doesn't work very well on radio, but frankly, if you do get the chance to go and have a look at this chap's photo... I would uh, recommend that you you get lost in what is a sensational bit of uh, facial hair. Anyway, Bridget, speaking of uh, facial hair. Hopefully not. I'm only kidding. Welcome to the show, I'm only kidding. Yes, I was going to say, Bridget, this is your debut on the pay-per-view and this is how you get treated. This is how you get treated. Who exactly is the hungry housewife? What's this? Well, the hungry housewife could be any one of our readers, in fact, but she is actually, for the purposes of our newspaper, Louisa Walters. Louisa Walters writes for the paper anyway, but she launched some time ago now a Facebook page which welcomed people to provide their views on restaurants that they've tried not not all kosher restaurants I hasten hasten to add 
but Haitian restaurants Haitian, as well. Haitian restaurants. Yes. That's a good one. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if she will ask her about that. Louisa loves eating out. She she amazingly Don't we all? Yes, I know she's amazingly slim at and people do question how she manages it, but she follows the two is it the two three diet? Two five. Oh, two yes, five. The two five. That's yes, it. yes, two five diet. So that's the secret. She eats out for for four days, stays at home for one, doesn't cook anything. So I, the, our headline for this is the hungry housewife. She knows her place, and it's not in the kitchen. Richard came up with that, which is rather lovely. Louisa, bravo, Richard. Is, well done. Yes, it's our new restaurant page. And within it, it's beautifully put together, I might say. Within it, we do a new restaurant that is being reviewed and and popular within the community. She has, I think, 6,000 people on her Facebook page, of which a large number are Jewish people. We do know Jews love to go out to eat. Then we do a new place in town, and then lots of little bits beside it. And that is going to feature every other week, because at the same time, we have kind of revitalised, reignited Denise Phillips, who is our regular cook, provides all the recipes it's now called plate expectations and the idea is that that hopefully will grow as well so they're going to be one week in one week out with louisa and denise phillips excellent so we look forward to reading more about that now richard rabbi danny rich obviously the head of liberal judaism in this country he has appeared in the paper because he's made rather well, provocative, shall we say, comments. What has he been saying? He's really stuck his neck out this week. A bit of a broigus between uh, the liberal community. And, and up until about a day or so ago, the Orthodox community actually ignored it. So it was more of a one-way thing. Liberal uh, Judaism's Rabbi Danny Rich this week said orthodoxy is based on discredited beliefs which is an extraordinary claim, a stunning rebuke. He said this at the Oxford University JSOC. He didn't say it in in any hot-headed terms. This was an academic, thoughtful, engaging debate. It wasn't an argument, nothing of the sort. So it was very clear and concise. Uh, He's no stranger to controversy. I remember a couple of years ago he wrote a piece about how Orthodox Judaism pickles Judaism is pickled in the 18th century and it just ignores modernity completely. So this isn't the first time he's tackled this, but I'll I'll just read you one particular. He says, the idea that the Torah was given directly to God and recorded accurately by Moses, who by divine miracle contributed its transmission through the generations, is simply untenable for a liberal Jew. So, yeah, he's he's not backwards about coming forwards. As I said, the United Synagogue decided it wouldn't dignify this with a response for a long time until just before we went to press when the uh, United Synagogue's president, Stephen Pack, suggested it it could have been a Purim spoof. I mean, they basically just, it was a throwaway line. So clearly they they didn't want to get into a a nitty-gritty argument. Rabbi Rich stands by his comments. I'd be fascinated to know what our readers and listeners think. Indeed. Well, if you want to get in contact, you know what you need to do. You email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. All right. Well, I don't think it's a massive shock to know that liberals and orthodoxy don't exactly see eye to eye, but we'll see how that one unfolds. Just finally, Bridget, Jews and the Oscars. Really? Jews are at the Oscars? Are they? Wasn't it disappointing, though? Oh, oh what a dreadful... Uh, the whole. I mean, I watched it, I've avidly watched I know that Richard is not actually a fan of award ceremonies per se. He finds all that... 
slapping each other on the back and congratulating themselves. There was a priceless moment at the Oscars, though. Louis C.K., the comedian, who is half Mexican, half Jewish, and I love him all the more for the half Jewish part, referred to the fact that for the short documentary makers, people who make the short films for documentary this was going to be the greatest day of their lives because unlike everyone else in the room who was rich and whether they won or didn't win would go home still rich for these poor little documentary makers who run around doing you know making worthy films for nothing and work just as hard let's be yes, honest but they don't, ne- don't necessarily Get yes. the glory of the longer Exactly. Films. It so. was a great moment. Amy won, didn't it, for us on the best documentary, which was fantastic. But it is a great documentary. Mr Spielberg, who is going to be shooting here in June, very excited about that at Leavesden. He's going to be making his next film here. He had Mark Rylance win for Bridge of Spies. So that was kind of good. I felt that it was a bit of a bit of tokenism as far as Spielberg was concerned though like they almost had to give him something so they gave it to Mark Rylance when actually Mark Ruffalo in Spotlight is brilliant as is Christian Bale I don't know if either of you have seen it yeah I've seen Spotlight it's great isn't it I like a film based around a newspaper yes and I used to work in Boston so it was actually very interesting it felt like home from home yeah yeah. Now, regrettably, we are out of time for this week's roundup of the paper, but I know that, Bridget, to try and stop you talking about film is a sin in itself, so I apologise. But thank you both very much indeed to Bridget Grant, Supplements Editor, and also Editor Richard Ferrer. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, Jews are scattered all over the world, and some of them are in the most unlikely of places. Take Tehran, for example, as you've just been hearing. In the heart of the Iranian capital lies a small community that has proven that in the most difficult of circumstances, it is possible to keep the traditions of our great religion alive. Journalist Annika Rothstein has been to visit said community, and she's been telling our very own Kate Fulton all about her trip. What made you go to Tehran? What's your background? The decision came about after actually a Rosh Hashanah dinner in Jerusalem. I was with some friends in Nafzion and I found out by chance that the dad and the family had relatives in Tehran. And we started talking about Persian Jews and the history of Persian Jews. and, And I became curious because it's such a closed off society and this branch of our family tree, so to speak, that not many people know about, I decided to at least try and go and see things for myself. I didn't even know there were Jews in Tehran. When I think of that part of the world, I actually think of the story, which is very apposite coming up, the Purim mm-hmm. story and right. Esther and you know what went on there. How many Jews are there? The figures are a a bit muddled, but they say 12,000 in the entire country and 7,000 of those live in Tehran today. Wow. So it's still a goodly, goodly community, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's basically the size of the Jewish community in Sweden, where I reside. So it's interesting. It's different, but weirdly similar. Perm was coming up. Uh, I wanted to go to Hamadan, where the tombs of Esther and Mordecai were, and anything above and beyond that, I would consider gravy. So you just got a plane to where and then got off and how did you know Well, it go? wasn't quite, I guess, as simple as that. I had to apply. I'm a journalist by trade and you can't really go on any other visa if you are a journalist because you, that can get you into a lot of trouble. So I had to apply for a journalist visa and I, it took me about three months to get accepted. And when I finally did, I hopped on a plane and went to Tehran. 
Gosh. And are the direct flights? No. So it was by uh, via Istanbul. God. But it's still pretty. It was eight hours all in all. So not, not a big schlep. But it must have been very different when you step off the plane. What did you think and see and feel? And where did you go? I'm not going to lie. I was super scared. <laughs> uh, I went twice. And the first time I went, uh, I was so, so, so nervous. I've never prayed as much just before landing on Imam Khomeini Airport. And with, I had practiced tying a hijab because, you know, because it's Sharia law, you have to cover your, your hair and wear a hijab. And I had never worn one before for obvious reasons. So I had practiced in my room in front of YouTube for like a week before just to be able to wear it stylishly. <laughs> and so you, I was really focused on that getting off. But you still must have been quite Western looking, Westernized. I mean, your shoes, your clothes, obviously not your hair because nobody has seen that, but your, your right. gestures and behavior because you're sound, I'm a confident woman in the West. Right. How I did you blend say- in? Persian women are plenty confident. I will say that. I mean, they're like Middle Eastern women, which means they have a lot of chutzpah. Uh, But uh, everyone kept asking me if I was Kurdish, if I was Syrian. I think they found me extremely odd. I'm quite tall. So I'm, you know, 175 centimeters. I, I have blue eyes and black hair and very pale skin. And I was an oddity for sure. People walked up to me all the time, just walking down the street. People came up to me and asked me, who am I? Where did I come from? Why was I there? But they were extremely happy to see me. And they all wanted to speak English to me. So where did you go? I had media handlers. Because I'm a journalist and I was there on a journalist visa, I was surrounded by by media handlers, which is regime people, basically. Uh, And I had a list of places I wanted to go. And the first place I went was the Jewish community. So that was my first stop. Um, cause I wanted to meet the Jews and I wanted to ask them, you know, where do I go to eat all these like really important things for a Jew traveling? Where can I find yeah. kosher food? Can I find exactly. kosher food? So that was my first stop. And, and it was fascinating, um, because I was met with, a, you know, a certain amount of suspicion, of course, coming from, from the outside and in, and they don't get a lot of visitors, obviously. So the first meeting was quite tense. And so they weren't aware of your coming beforehand? You couldn't have emailed and said, hello? Well, they did know that I was coming, but they still did not. They wanted to verify me as a Jew. So the first thing that happened was that the head of the Jewish community on the spot told me to recite the entire Shema in front of him. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> which is, as anyone knows, if you're put on the spot, even if you know something, of course. you're you put on the spot. You stuttering. Heart- mm-hmm. Yes. And I was sweating profusely. But after that, you know, it's like you click in because, you know, okay, we're family. I know you, you know me, we're the same people. And from that moment on, I I really did find a new family in in the Jewish community in Tehran. And I felt very welcome. Sounds incredible. So you were embraced by, by this new family. Did you actually find your own lineage, your own ancestry? Well, I, it depends on, on how you define that. What I did find was I felt incredibly and surprisingly connected to Persian Jewry. I guess that came about because very early on in the trip, I, I went to Hamadan, which is about three and a half hours outside of Tehran, to see the graves of Esther and Mordecai. And, you know, Esther is obviously a, a hero and a role model of mine. And to be able to just see that for myself, I was all alone. I was able to be there by the tombs, to pray, to sit there all by myself and feel just deeply, deeply connected and feel that my lineage is here as well as it is in, in Israel. 
it was a dramatic and very, very emotional experience for me. And I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to see that and, and to know that all the rumors were false. It, it hasn't been destroyed. It's still there and it's glorious. Extraordinary and a really interesting experience. And we can read more about your experience in the Jewish news. You came back safely. Were there any really fearful moments you can just tell us? Well, there, there were several, but, but more in the second trip. I was, I was invited back, surprisingly, after my first trip to go cover the elections. So I went back two and a half weeks after I had first gone. I went straight back to Tehran to cover the Iranian elections. That was incredibly tense. I have worked for Israeli media. I have you know, strong ties to Israel. And that caused a bit of an issue for me. Uh, midway through my trip. And, and I learned that, you know, everything in Iran is perfectly fine until nothing is fine. <laughs> That's the nature of that regime, that it is, you know, it's, it's built on control. And it's also built on a deep sense of insecurity. And I became painfully aware of that throughout my trip as well, unfortunately. Journalist Annika Rothstein telling Kate Fulton about the fascinating Jewish community of Tehran. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin is back and he will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive, Adam and Kate will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havadi. They'll be discussing converting to Judaism. Plus, Diana Toman will be finding out about that very subject when she speaks to Rabbi Jackie Tabak, who's just come back from a conversion weekend that she has organised. Now, if, like me, you enjoy a bit of comedic theatre, then this next item is definitely for you. Not Moses opens in London's West End this week and is the brainchild of director Gary Signor. An intriguing title that doesn't necessarily tell you that much about it. Luckily, though, I've managed to grab a quick moment with Gary from an extremely busy schedule, and I started by asking him where did the title Not Moses come from? As soon as I realised that I wanted to have two characters, both Moses and a character who wasn't Moses, it became, it was like immediate, I'm going to call that other character not Moses, because what else could I possibly call him? It was just obvious that he had to be called that. So it came almost with the very original concept, that sort of moment when you first conceive of an idea, there was like the title and it was going to be called Not Moses. So tell us about that original concept. Where did the production, the storyline idea come to you from? So it actually came to me because I was talking to two American writers who I know quite well. And they said to me, we should do a biblical comedy. And I said, that's brilliant. I'd love to do that. I'm definitely going to do that. And then immediately after we started to have that conversation, they wanted to do an entirely different biblical comedy to the biblical comedy that was already starting to gestate in my head. So we basically said, look, you do your biblical comedy and I'm going to go and do my biblical comedy. So uh, I, you know, I give them thanks and stuff like that. And we're, you know, we're still very good mates, but they're meant to be doing theirs. And I then started to work on the script for Not Moses, which was originally a film project that uh, was written as a film and then only after a long period of trying to make it as a film did I turn it into a play. What about the entire process involved in putting this into this production because I'm guessing that you don't suddenly think to yourself oh I'm going to write a play and then suddenly you find yourself appearing in London's West End. I'm guessing there's a little bit of a process behind it. Can you talk the, us through that? The process was having gone through the process of not being able to make it as a film and you know people saying can you cast Jude Law in the lead role and sort of things that would never have happened in a million years. The process of turning it into a play 
it was interesting because first of all, people said to me things like, oh, you don't realize it's not, it's not that easy just to turn a film into a play. And I was like, I'd already seen the whole thing in my head again and just sort of gone, well, actually, I have a very clear idea of how this will work. So I basically adapted my own film script and turned it into a play and made it more... It was great because you'd have a scene, for example, in a film that had Moses leading 600,000 people out of Egypt, or in our case, actually, Miriam leading 600,000 people out of Egypt, but, uh, and, and you'd CGI the whole thing. So you'd have to go and pay these guys, and they'd create little men and double them up and triple them up and quadruple them, and you'd have like these huge hordes. And then I thought, well, no, actually, I'll just turn the audience into the children of Israel. And so what we have is like, you know, a slave a taskmaster basically ordering the audience not to move around, but sort of saying, you know, come on, get a move on and this sort of thing. And we've got some extraordinary things. I mean, the whole thing with the bringing the Ten Plagues and the Ten Commandments to the stage, we are doing it biblically. I mean, it, so it became apparent very early on that we'd have to use projection, back projection, to make the uh, experience theatrical, but also cinematic. So we've got the parting of the Red Sea, and we've got, the, we've got the frogs and stuff. I can't give away how we're doing all these things, but they're all... Like, I just worked out what's the funniest way that I could do these things and really have fun with an audience. And that is the way that we've done it. And so it should be hilarious. And I'm guessing that if someone obviously comes along and sees it, they'll know very quickly exactly how those are achieved. With the production itself, talk about getting your cast together. Who have you got in the cast? How did you go about getting them? And, and did you have someone in mind? You said you obviously mentioned Jude Law potentially for the film version. Oh, yeah. But the, did, well, was, did you know what you wanted for the stage I, version? Not really. It was really odd. I sort of, when you start to, I mean, you asked earlier about how it became a play. So I turned it into this play and then we were talking to one theatre and then they were like interested in it. And then, then they said no. And then we started talking to the arts theatre and the arts theatre said said yes and it's all about windows and when they can do it because they're planning like a year ahead so about like nine months ago the arts editor said okay well we've got a slot here and we want to offer it to you so that sort of helped and then I started looking for cast and you do start to you know people say oh if you can get like an A-list cast it'll sell out immediately so you know there was a little bit of looking at you know people who might be very well known and it became apparent that theatre, first of all, it doesn't pay very much for the actors. So they sort of do it for the love of the theatre. But we've got an ensemble piece. We've got nine actors in this in this piece. And although they're all brilliant, I don't think any... And I think if they win any awards, it'll be as an ensemble. So if, And if you're a big star, you really want to take the lead, you know, like you're Bradley Cooper, you want to play the Elephant Man. And so that's what you do, because you want to win awards with your stuff. And, um, and so we, we clearly weren't that. So it became apparent we weren't going to get like a huge, huge, huge name. But over a period of time, we had read-throughs, and then I narrowed it down. And then we had a casting session, and I found an amazing actress called Jasmine Hyde, who is going to play, who's in The Archers, and plays a regular character in The Archers. And don't ask me what, because I actually never listen to The Archers. The music itself just makes me want to switch it off. But she is brilliant. She's extraordinary. She, she became the princess. And then, and then I had another casting session where I found Not Moses and Moses together. And they, it became very clear that they were amazing but that was really quite late in the day it was sort of around the turn of year December that we really found those people and then a guy called Joe Morrow who is just the campus taskmaster in the history of taskmasters and does incredible things with a whip and we just started to build up an amazing amazing really funny cast and we found what's interesting is completely ridiculously it was someone who's a friend of a friend who's the mother of a friend of mine ran me up and said there's an Israeli actor who you know we like and I, and I thought oh God, really am I gonna it's like friend of a friend thing it's bound not to work 
And this guy called Neve Petel is extraordinary. And he's playing Ramses. And he just walked, he like walked into the room and just nailed Ramses. He's just the most weird pharaoh in the history of pharaohdom. So we've, we've got those characters. And then there's an actor called Dana Hakshu, who worked with Omid a lot, plays a sort of older pharaoh and also plays Jethro, the father of Zipporah, in a scene that I think probably is one of the showstoppers of the, of the, of the play. So obviously, I think we've more than established, as you've said, it is a biblical comedy. But how much does religion actually play a part within it? Because how true to the story of Moses, the Red Sea, and all of that come to fruition because i suppose what i'm getting at there may be some people listening who would hear the terms biblical comedy and then they might think to themselves if they're quite say religious oh i don't know if i fancy the idea of this because it it could be a bit i don't know whether or not offensive is the right word but do you see what i mean it might not necessarily be true to the story that judaism is heavily sort of based on yeah i mean i think well it's certainly not true to the it certainly plays with the story of the exodus it'd be it wouldn't be a comedy if i just told the story as the torah tells the story then not that many laughs i think and also it's quite short so we certainly have, have played with that but i think all i can go by is that the script as a play was read by and indeed when it was a film was read by orthodox rabbis in this country and in others, in South Africa and places. There were people with the longest beards and the blackest of hats read it and <laughs> thought it was very, very funny. So I think it's to do with if you feel confident in your faith and confident that, you know, that you can have uh, the, the mickey taken out of it, then you're going to be fine. If you're easily offended, then we can have Christians and Muslims might come into this play and be easily offended. But mainly, I think, I mean, we've got just some very funny things that hopefully won't entirely offend people. I mean, I will say it is borderline. We play with God in a way that I find interesting and comedic, but I see that in the Torah. When Moses, in the story of Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments, is told to go up the mountain, and, he's, and God says, make sure no one comes near the mountain for three days, and then God calls him up to the mountain again, and then sends him back down to the mountain, and then calls him up to the mountain again, and eventually Moses says, look, I've <laughs> been down to the mountain, and I've told them not to come up. This is like, and it happens like three times. Or, for example, with Pharaoh and the, and the plague of the cattle, the cattle get killed about four times during the course of the ten plagues. First of all, there's a plague that kills all the cattle. Then there's another plague where the, the hail gets all the cattle that are left. And then there's another plague, the firstborn, where the cattle are threatened again. Now, I see humor in that. Like, how on earth are these cattle constantly, they're killed like three, four times over? So what I'm doing is highlighting these things, which if you look at them objectively, are actually funny and you know, I think it's fair, fair to have a laugh at those things. Well, it all sounds amazing. And I'm sure that people listening now have more than well and truly got a taster and would love to find out how they go about coming to see it. What do they do? So, uh, well, it's on at the Arts Theatre. It's the, uh, from March the 10th till May the 14th. So the best way to get tickets is to look up Not Moses. Try and spell it. Actually, if you spell it Not Gap Moses or Not Moses as one word, it still comes up. And then there's an Arts Theatre website which is in itself entertaining, and then that leads you through to a place where you can buy tickets. 
Director Gary Signor telling me there about Not Moses, which opens in London's West End this week. And as Gary has just mentioned, you could always search for Not Moses in your favourite search engine, and it is bound to come up with more information. However, if you are able to, you might prefer to go to Not Moses on Stage, all one word, dot com, Not Moses on Stage, dot com. That is their website, or you can always go to the Arts Theatre website, which is Arts Theatre West End. Again, all one word. .co.uk. The run of Not Moses is from the 11th of March until the 14th of May, and ticket prices vary from twenty pounds right the way up to fifty pounds. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk, or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com/jewishviews, or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, all too often, it's very easy to take for granted what being born into Judaism actually means. For those who want to go down the route of converting, it's a path strewn with intense studying and copious amounts of hard work. Yet, above it all, there are those with the dedication to see it through. In the second of its kind, the reform movement has organised a residential weekend to help those on their path to Judaism experience it further. Diana Toman has been speaking to the organiser Rabbi Jackie Tabik to find out more for us, and she started by asking Rabbi Jackie to give us a bit of background about the weekend. I am a great believer in people getting together to celebrate Shabbat in a residential area where they can relax a little, learn, and get to know each other. So two years ago, I set up the first. Residential weekend for those who are thinking about conversion, or are on the way to conversion, or indeed have converted already, and the conversion in general takes around in most synagogues about eighteen months of a process. So I did another one two years later to enable new people to come along on such an, an adventure. And that was this winter. That was the second one. Yes. This was the second one. Now, what intrigues me is that the progressive movement has always been in favour of, or has been instrumental in getting people to convert to Judaism. It seems amazing that this has never happened before. One of these get-togethers. Maybe it's because they haven't had a, a rabbi in charge of the Bet Din, who's done an enormous amount of youth work and seen the benefits of residential weekends firsthand all through my working life. And that was you, and that was me. Yes. How many people did you get to come? We had twenty, and we had a, a couple of little kids around.、Uh, rabbi Esther from Leeds came with her two littleies, and that was great because it meant people had an excuse to. Cuddle someone and play, right? And my husband and I were there as well. Did you find that there were more people on this event than the one in 2014? No, around the same number. How was it divided between men and women? It was actually mostly women. Do you know I never took real count? It might not be important. It might it, not it be important. It obviously wasn't important to me, right? But I didn't really notice. My feeling is. That there was a preponderance of women there, but I can't tell you for sure. 
because I didn't count. All ages? Yes, all ages. Um, again, a preponderance of slightly older people and people who are converting lishma um, without a partner for their own sake. So they don't have family backing. And I think it was good then to come along uh, to a, a weekend where you can see, see Shabbat celebrated in its entirety. Um, but we did have uh, a young couple there as well and some young singles right through to people of retirement age who have reached that age and said, right, now it's my turn to do something for me. That's very interesting. So, but we're not talking about just Shabbat, are we? I mean, this was a whole weekend. So what took place on the rest of the weekend? <laughs> it started, obviously, Friday afternoon, and Shabbat comes in very soon after that. Uh, Saturday evening was a more relaxed time. We actually um, just got... I mean, by the time you finish dinner in a hotel, you know what it's like. And people were very tired, because we'd really... I know it was Shabbat. We worked them hard and many, many discussions. Over Shabbat, we did some learning together, some chavruta, where people took the Torah portion. And with the help of commentaries that we provided and questions we provided, we encouraged people to study together in small groups, in pairs if possible. We also played games about which mitzvot, how do you value mitzvot, um, we did um, uh, values clarification type exercises, lots of different ways of looking at the subject of what it is to be a Jew. And we continued that, obviously, Sunday morning. We had a shachrit where people had a chance, if they wished, to try putting on tefillin. Uh, really? Of course. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a chance to experiment, a chance to do different things. And then afterwards, we again had discussions and exercises in, in terms of what it means to be a Jew. And I imagine you've had some wonderful feedback. Oh, we did. We had great feedback. One of our exercises, which I think got people talking a lot, was I provided a whole pile of pictures and you had to pick up a picture and say, prayer to me is like whatever the picture was. Because. Really? So I had yes. picked up a bicycle and I said, prayer to me is like a bicycle because prayer can be very hard work. It's better if you do it regularly. And if you're lucky, you'll get to a good spiritual place in the end. Splendid. <laughs> and I'm assuming, I'm hoping that this is going to happen biannually. I mean, is the next one we going to so. be in 2018? We hope so. Please, God. Rabbi Jackie Tabak speaking to community reporter Diana Toman there about Reform's second ever residential conversion weekend. Fascinating stuff, I'm sure you'll agree. And as I said just before, it really does go to show the lengths that some people are prepared to go to to convert to Judaism. Still to come on this edition of The Jewish Views will be our rabbinic thought for the week. And this week it comes from Rabbi James Barden from Sharait Sedek, North London Reform Synagogue. But before that... You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Rosalind, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And can I thank Simon Lederman and Russ Kane for sitting in for me? 
over the last two programmes. Joining Adam Bradley, Kate Fulton and me today is journalist and author Jeremy Havadi. And the subject today is based on what we've just heard Dana Toman talking about with Rabbi Jackie Tabak, conversion to Judaism. The question is, are we making life too difficult for people who aren't Jewish to convert to Judaism? And is that being detrimental to the number of people who identify themselves as Jewish? Jeremy, let's start with you. I think the simple answer I would give to that is yes. I think it is. Institutions are making it too hard for people who wish to convert to Judaism to actually do so. It takes a very substantial length of time to actually complete the conversion, whichever denomination you go through. And of course, that reflects the fact that we are not a, a faith that encourages converts. But it is a very, very lengthy process. And while I wouldn't want to see any kind of process of instant conversion as you have perhaps in other faiths, I would want things to be smoothed over as much as possible. I wouldn't want to see so many barriers, if you like, put in the way. I would like there to be a spirit as well of welcoming so that if somebody really does want to become part of the faith, and particularly if they are Zerah Yisrael, if they have you know, perhaps one parent who's Jewish, not the mother, or grandparents who are Jewish, um, something is done to really bring them more into the community, to make them feel welcome, to really help them to embrace the spirit of Judaism, and just, just to make the whole process easier, because instead of it, it being so unwieldy and bureaucratic and, and full of these barriers, I, I just think that that will put people off and something should be should be done that makes it a lot easier. Kate, I have a feeling that you don't entirely <laughs> agree with that. I'm going to say I completely disagree, Jeremy. I'm sorry to say... The first thing, you're right, we're not, a, we're not a missionary religion. We don't want to convert. And the first thing that we do when someone says, well, I'd like to convert, we say, no, you don't. Uh, no. And then you make sure that they come back and they come back because that way shows real true commitment. Because if you're going to fall down at the first hurdle, my goodness, there's going to be plenty more that you'll fall down on. You try keeping Shabbos for a week. So that's, that's the first thing. And also, if you really believe in Judaism, the commandments, the 613 plus commandments, you, you become it's part of your soul. It's part of who you are. And you've got to really want to change. And why are you going to give somebody whose soul, actually, if they follow the seven Noahide laws, they're going to get to the same place anyway. So why give them another 613? And the other thing, just to answer Jeremy's question, it's a lifestyle thing. The reason that the process does take so long, it's not just to be dafka and annoying. It's actually to make sure that a person has lived at least one, ideally two, whole season, seen every season from Rosh Hashanah right through to Hanukkah and lived it and been part of the family ideally, been inside it because often people who want to convert haven't really lived it before. It's very interesting what you say because I know a woman who eventually married a Jewish man. She was the niece of a bishop and when she decided to convert to Judaism she went to live from England to Australia to live with a particularly religious family and took in for two and a half years what the religion was all about and then became converted. And she's been one of the most religious and truly faithful Jewess as I've known for many, many years. So you do have a point, I think. Adam, what do you think? Well, uh, for my initial thoughts are, um, Kate, how firm are you keeping Shabbos for a week? That's incredible. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, also, every day during the week, but hey, think but of worse it, things. Yeah, I, I, I hope that was the case. <laughs> um, but in all seriously, I'm really somewhere in between you, actually, because I do think there is a degree of difficulty about the conversion process in this country. 
I think that has to be stressed that this country is particularly difficult compared to Israel, America or anywhere else. But Jeremy, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you think it should be more welcoming and it shouldn't be so hard. Why should it? Well, we're talking, first of all, I think there's a distinction that I want to draw between, and I hate to use the word opportunistic, but opportunistic converts. These are people who may have no interest whatsoever in the faith, in Judaism, in Jewish values and culture, who are simply doing it to please a partner. And they're going through the process. And I I think where you have that situation, yes, by by all means, you you need to encourage people to think that actually this this is a very hard thing potentially to do. And those who already have perhaps some Jewish heritage, as, as many converts do, and they really have a burning desire. And this is what the question said, a burning desire perhaps to become Jewish and to go through the process. And I'm not saying that, that you should make it easy because, of course, Judaism is it's, it's legalistic. There's all kinds of things that I think you, you need to know. And, and beyond that, there are values you need to embrace. I just think that if you... I don't want to have a, I don't want to have a process where where people are sort of left in the cold. I, you know, I want them, as I say, to once they've shown that initial commitment and they've shown that zeal, then give, give them something. It, well, yes, exactly. I mean, harness it in some way, and that doesn't necessarily mean you, you start going to shul every single week. But you know, why not, for example, allow them to engage in some kind of cultural practices and really make them feel a little bit so, welcome when they've sh- when they've shown, as I say, a, a certain stage of commitment. Now, whether that's a month, three months, six months, I don't know. But. So presumably you're saying really there shouldn't be a blanket rule for everyone that each case needs to be assessed in its own merits, really, because there are so many different reasons and levels of mm. conversion. I know, for example, my, my father was converted mm. initially via reform when I was maybe not even born, then about 15 years ago via orthodox because... They got to the stage where they thought, this is where we are now. Mm. It was made very, very clear to him that he shouldn't convert, mm. that you don't want to become a Jew, that why would you want to be oppressed by people, hated by people? You know? And they put him off, put him off, put him off. Eventually, when he converted, the arms are wide open and you know the hugs and the dancing around. You know? So there, I, I do agree that there has to be a certain stringency, as you said, Kate, about making sure these people are genuine about this. I mean, there's like the old, uh, I think there's an episode of Family Guy where he wants his son to get a conversion because then he'll become rich and, and, and successful. Uh, uh, you know, Maybe grow a nose or whatever other cliches. Exactly, and that, to. I think there are, there is... There are people out there that think, if I become Jewish, I'll become successful. I, w- I wonder what you all think about this. this is a particular case that I know of. Some few years ago, a cousin of mine married out, as it were, to a non-Jewish wife. They went to live in America. And a few years ago, I went to their son's wedding in a synagogue, in a so-called Orthodox synagogue, to a girl who wasn't even, as far as I was aware, totally non-Jewish. I think she had Jewish blood in her from somewhere. But the rabbi said she was Jewish. She'd been converted, although the bridegroom himself hadn't been converted. He, was, he had a non-Jewish mother. They had a kosher wedding. All the food was kosher. They brought their children up as Jewish. How do you, how do you answer that one? I think it becomes so messy yeah. at that point. It's, it's, so it's America, of course. It is America. I mean, I've been to a synagogue in America where the rabbi was sitting on Shabbat, strumming on her guitar, all these shalom aleichem tunes and quite honestly it was just farcical because it broke every single bit of the Shabbos laws which whether you do them or not you may you, at least you know if you're breaking it 
But the one you're talking about is, is a reform synagogue. It was not, actually. You know, oh, I, I'm so confused by the time I've unpicked what all the different denominations are. I mean, it's, I'm quite binary in that way. This is what Judaism is. This is the laws. Do them or don't do them. That's really your choice. It's not like I'm there to, to enforce it, but this is what it is. This is the way the laws are. This is how they've been interpreted by wider, wiser minds, than, certainly than mine. And... If I don't do it, then I'm in, I'm in breach and I, I will take the consequences. Well, let's give you another case. A man I've met a number of times who had a Jewish father and always wanted to be a Jew, has not been converted, but lives a totally kosher Jewish life. He wears a kippah. He speaks Hebrew perfectly. He observes all the festivals, but the Jews will not convert him. I think if he goes back to them often enough, if he went to a Beth Din and said, this is what I've been doing, this is the way I've been living, I imagine, I have no authority to say this, I imagine that his conversion will be an awful lot speedier than someone who's just, like you said, an opportunist mm. who just quite fancies, you know, see what Judaism is like this week. Perfect example. And if I can actually bring in, I know it's controversial to bring in the, the JFS case, but I, only, I mention it because I actually know one of the students involved. <laughs> but there you have a case where the parents have gone to Israel, they've gone through the conversion. The children are as orthodox, as from as any other orthodox Jewish students. I can say from personal experience, I know that's the case. And yet, and yet, they're somehow seen as being outside of the, of the community, which again illustrates the difficulty of what goes on in, in Britain. And I just think that's a, that's a perfect example where instead of trying to bring people in, we're throwing, you know, we're pushing them out. And it just seems to me to be the wrong approach in that type so of case. So what you're really saying is there is a happy medium somewhere. <laughs> I think there is. I mean, it's opening a can of worms to say there shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach to to all converts. But I think in cases where, and going back to what you said, people really want to, they really have shown they want to embrace Judaism and become Jewish. You know, yes, there's a certain stage at which you, you perhaps try and put people off, but particularly in, a, in the cases we've talked about, one you just mentioned, try and bring them in and encourage them in some way. I just want to make the point that JFS, as you probably well know now, does take in non-Jewish yeah. so that issue yes whether I can say it's cleared up or whether it's caused more problems I don't know I guess only yeah. time will tell but my main concern really with, with the whole conversion process is we could be pushing people away and ultimately having quite a detrimental effect on the size of of the Jewish community I'm concerned at the best of times about the, the dwindling figures. Nah, we're the, quality, the, not quantity. But are we, though? Because let's yep. look at the fastest growing... We've never been big. The fastest growing section of Judaism in this country is, is the Haredim. Is that quality over quantity? That's okay. quantity. I, think, I think personally highest. that one of the tragedies in this country is that a great number of Jewish families have stopped being Jewish the middle of the road, if you like, is disappearing completely. Now, I don't quite know why, but I think part of it is because of intermarriage and Judaism being so difficult to join as a religion. And they're halachic Jews. They're not even converties you're talking about yes, now. Yeah, yes. quite. Mm. That is a worry, in my opinion, because I, I think I don't think that Judaism is doing enough to encourage people to stay with it. I know we, we don't want to encourage people to become Jews. I mean, proselytising is... is very much against our, our way of thought about our religion. but In amongst our own, we do it. Can I just say, the majority of my generation of practising Jews, middle-of-the-road Jews, their children are marrying out, as it were, 
and we're losing all these people who might have one day been middle-of-the-road Jews and are now going to go to be Christian or whatever. But that's what happened. Well, that happened in the previous generation, surely, after the war where people did lose contact. And I think we're kind of... But facing the problems reason, now right? oh for a different reason I, absolutely but we're facing that, yeah. the same problem now where people aren't they don't know if they're Jewish or not because of this conversion that conversion are they married in married out it's God's it's not field. cool anymore though people aren't seeking to be more religious so if if they happen to be moving in non-Jewish circles and not that many young people the the sort of 25 pluses that you want to be joining who aren't they're not part of the parents if you like the families they're not particularly joining on their own where they get, they're going to be meeting people in not particularly Jewish surroundings mm. and marrying out. And, and if I can, if I can add this as well to that point, hence the need for pluralism as well. A pluralism of denominations, a pluralism of approaches to try and ensure that if people are turned cold by, let's say, their parents' shawl or approach, that there is something else that they can latch onto, which perhaps is more meaningful to them. But you can't water down the religion just because it doesn't suit. It depends what you mean by water. Well, it depends what you mean by water down. I mean, you know, I will freely confess that I'm, for example, non-orthodox, but I wouldn't say that the alternative approach is necessarily watering down. It's a different interpretation, which is meaningful to those congregants who actually embrace. Well, that maybe it's a different approach. way of doing it. You can have a shawl that's maybe different times, maybe mm. more kid-friendly, more children's services, or whatever it is that young people want. They want different speakers and and different. But but you can't just change the religion because a few because the because they're not well but involved. we already have obviously we with it within the faith we do have so many different approaches and look i would always say if it's a, if it's about a dichotomy you know people may otherwise completely leave because they're so turned off and they end up literally they'll marry out and they'll have no jewish connection whatsoever or they will remain within the jewish fold but they will do things in a way which let's say is outside of you know mainstream orthodoxy it's outside that approach it's, so there we are. Then we have to leave it at that because our time is up. But it's a, it's a sadness, actually, I think. We haven't really come to any conclusion. And I don't think there is a conclusion. And let's hope that Judaism does continue, converted or non-converted. Adam, Kate and I send our grateful thanks to our guest journalist and author, Jeremy Havadi. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. This time it comes from Rabbi James Barton from Sharet Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue. A long time ago, when I was quite young, it was expected that young adults would fly the coop, leave home at quite a young age, normally around 18, and in all likelihood never return, that is, not as a resident. A great desire for independence was inculcated in us. Nowadays, there are very powerful economic reasons for the opposite phenomenon. The cost of housing, whether bought or rented, is out of reach, out of sight, for so many people. Very large numbers of younger adults have no choice but to live at home with their parents. This is the reality in London and in other places too, Edinburgh, Oxford, Toronto, New York, Moscow, Singapore, Sydney. Yet, there are also cities like Newcastle where there are plenty of affordable houses. A very different reality applies in those places. 
At the synagogue level, we are seeing a number of initiatives aimed at combining resources. There are closures, but also mergers and new forms of community partnership. Here, too, there has been massive change. There was a time when it was the top senior leaders of reform and liberal Judaism, say, 30 years ago, in the 1980s, who engaged in talks about formal merger. It never happened. Today, things really are happening, however, in the local grassroots setting. That's the level where members of quite a few synagogue communities are involved right now in efforts to pool resources and run programs jointly. Looking back farther, about 70 years ago, it was even loftier senior leaders who had just witnessed six years of devastation and mass murder who were busy creating collaborative associations of nations. The UN, the European Court of Human Rights, the Council of Europe, and the coal and steel community which grew into the European Union. That was their mission then, in the shadow of catastrophe and genocide. In this context, too, however, times change. Today we see many people, especially here in Britain, who seem to be impatient to abandon the international commitments and bonds established in earlier years. In the second chapter of the Torah, Genesis 2, God, after creating Adam, suddenly announces, Lotov heyota Adam levado. It is not good for Adam, for the person, for the human being, to be alone. Alas, this simple statement has been interpreted in wrong and unjust ways over the millennia, to say that it is wrong to be single, or it is wrong to be other than heterosexual, etc. But the statement simply asserts that for the person, isolation, aloneness, is not experienced as good. And accordingly, we read, other beings were brought into being, first of all, all kinds of animals and birds, and then the person later named Eve, creating two human genders. And this week, we complete our reading of the second book of the Torah of Exodus, a great narrative of individuals and families journeying towards becoming a community, a unit of persons together, the Jewish people. There are many ways in which we share our existence with others, and there are plenty of shared joys in family life, in marriage, in communities, in school, in politics, even at work. But there are breakages, separations, conflicts. So many challenges. But being human is about facing those challenges, not backing out. Of course, being with others can be a struggle. Sometimes togetherness is imposed on us in unfair, disagreeable ways. Sometimes, like Greta Garbo, we naturally want to be alone. And sometimes there are truly bad forms of union and partnership which have to be reformed or dissolved. However, in Judaism at least, it's not just a question of arriving at some utilitarian assessment of what suits me or suits us at some given moment. That verse in the Torah in Genesis tells us that ultimately the state of pure aloneness is not seen as good. Instead, as we read or sing in the Psalms, How good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to sit together, to dwell together. Good and pleasant, but not always easy. Thank you to Rabbi James Barden from Sharai Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue, with our thoughts for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Annika Rothstein, Gary Signor, 
Rabbi Jackie Tabak. Thanks also to the Schmooze team and their guest Jeremy Havardi, and of course to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank our team, including our producers Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of the Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, JewishNews.co.uk, and of course you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.